everybody! The episode you're about to hear was supposed to be our Christmas special. And then somebody forgot to bring the raw recordings with her over Christmas break and so couldn't edit the episode until now. So first it was a Christmas episode, and then it was supposed to be an Epiphany episode, and now it's just a Christmas in January episode? Think of it as Christmas Part 2, The Last Hurrah, The Thirteenth Day of Christmas. However you think about it, Merry Christmas everybody. Enjoy the episode. The story is about the space between starting the thing and succeeding at the thing. And that's the punchline. That's the joke. I just hate Charlie Brown. Can't anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? The gods of this world somehow all become worthless in the face of one real thing. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Unreliable Narrators where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Dokapel. And I'm Sophie Belonkel. And what time is it over there, Sophie? It is 8.20 p.m. What time is it for you right now, Raymond? It is 9.15 a.m. in New Taipei City. This is the first time we've ever recorded while being this far apart, I think. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. This is, uh, this is the, inter- the, the, the really the, the, the miracle of the internet <laughs> we're taking advantage of here. But you won't be able to tell the difference, hopefully. But, but we decided we got to come together to have a, a Christmas episode, and this is, this is the time to do it. Um, I'm actually in a special place right now. I had to go to a friend's house where it was actually quiet because I hear uh, the garbage trucks in Taiwan play uh classical music about 15 times a day uh they play furalise um and it sounds like an ice cream truck and it's very loud uh so we could not record in my room uh there's also motorcycles everywhere and also there's an election it's election season right now so the phone might ring in the middle of this episode um just giving you a little bit of a forewarning for that wait can you explain what people do when the ice cream truck garbage truck goes by with the music. <laughs> uh, they grab their garbage and they run down and chase the garbage <laughs> truck and throw it in because it only comes at certain times of the day. This is a whole thing when foreigners come to Taiwan. They're so shocked. They have no idea what's going on uh, because the garbage truck has a very special uh, uh, schedule. So, <laughs> yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to. But, but yeah, it's a whole experience. It's a true, true tourist experience taking out the garbage in Taiwan. Incredible. Um, um, you know what also is really popular in Taiwan is uh, Charlie Brown. Ooh. Did you know that? <laughs> and this is uh, just a little bit of a smooth segue into the topic of our conversation today because we're going to be talking about something that is uh, very close to my heart, uh, one of my favorite comic strips of all time and TV shows of all time, which is a Charlie Brown Christmas. And I, I was not lying. This is popular in, in Taiwan, but I guess it's popular all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Peanuts t- still is one of the most beloved comic strips of all time. Uh, but you definitely, I mean, I, I see people wearing Peanuts t-shirts, uh, Snoopy t-shirts everywhere here. But yeah, um, I grew up 
uh, reading Peanuts, I've read the entire 50 years of Charles Schultz's Peanuts from really? beginning to end. Yes, I've read the whole thing. Um, I've seen the whole evolution of it. Actually, the very early comic strips, Charlie Brown and the gang look very different from the way they look now. I mean, they look more like, you know, sort of like a classic uh, fi- uh, 50s Kellogg, uh, Kellogg serial mm-hmm. uh, advertisement. And by the end of the comic strip, you could tell he was getting old because the drawings are very shaky. Yeah, uh, it's it's it was my dream actually. I wanted to be a cartoonist because of Charles Schultz growing up. He's inspired a lot of people. He's really actually kind of set the standard for what comic strips are. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone sort of follows after him. Uh, this is from Bill Watterson, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. He says Peanuts pretty much defines the modern comic strip. So even now, it's hard to see it with fresh eyes. The clean, minimalist drawings, the sarcastic humor, the unflinching emotional honesty, the inner thoughts of a household pet, and the serious treatment of children. The wild fantasies, the merchandising on an enormous scale in countless countless ways, Schultz blazed the wide trail that almost every cartoonist since has tried to follow. Mm. Um, So I guess a question I want to just start out with is why do you think people love peanuts so much there's something unique about it obviously each character is consistent and represents something that's real there's something very raw about it i think in a representation of the human experience what i think your answer might be to this question is that charlie brown he doesn't succeed at everything he's kind of a loser (laughs) he doesn't do well at the things that he tries to do um and that maybe we relate a little bit to charlie brown or that charlie brown is a hero for the masses because he doesn't uh he's not a hero at all (laughs) well well he's uh uh he's more than than uh just just relatable yeah i mean he's he's us i think that's why the everyman why he's so yeah, he's he's so celebrated. Um, the very first comic strip, uh, the very first Charlie Brown comic strip. There's these uh, two two girls sitting on a bench. Um, I think they're Violet and and um, Patty or something. Uh, and Charlie Brown's walking by, and they say, "Oh look, here comes good old Charlie Brown. Good old Charlie Brown, such a great guy, Charlie Brown." And then the moment he passes by, uh, they say, "How I hate him." <laughs> and that's the punchline, right? That's the joke. <laughs> I just hate Charlie Brown. <laughs> so that really defined the comic strip. And Charles Schultz is very uh, transparent of, about the fact that that Charlie Brown was him. That, mm-hmm. he, he, that it represents. I mean, he's not like disguising that or anything. Um, Charles Schultz was the son of a barber. Uh, Charlie Brown is also the son of a barber in the in the strip. Um, it's not, he's, he's not actually bald. Um, he's, uh, uh, he's actually blonde. And mm. the explanation is that his hair is so short. It doesn't just, you can't really draw it in a comic strip. So that's why he has that little swirl on his forehead. Mm. But Charles Schultz skipped two grades in primary school. So he was always the smallest and he was always picked on. Um, but not because really he was... Uh, a failure it was actually because he was too successful Um, Hmm. he was 
exceptionally smart. He was very talented. He exceeded in all of his uh, school subjects and especially in drawing. And so he suffered a lot from bullying and from low self-esteem. And I think what's also interesting if you read the Peanuts comic strip is that there is a little bit of a two-sidedness Charlie Brown is not really as wishy-washy as everyone says he is. Hmm. Um, because despite the fact that he never succeeds in anything, he you know he never wins a baseball game, right? He never kicks Lucy's football. He never gets the courage to approach the little red-haired girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else. There's a whole series of stories of things that he's trying to do that he, he never... Oh, he never flies a kite. That's the other one. Oh, yeah. Um... But the thing is, he's the leader of the gang, right? Like, no one says you shouldn't be manager. No one usurps him. Mm-hmm. No one wants to take his place. They all decide he's going to be the manager. He's uh, he's really in charge of everyone Yeah. there. And he he never gives up. And I think that one of the reasons why we, we love to read the Peanuts comic strip is because not because we like to see Charlie Brown fail, but we love to see him get back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because he represents us, and most of our lives are categorized or are are characterized by all this frustration and failure. And we need to see someone who's, despite being wishy washy and cowardly and having and not being all that impressive, that he he always gets up again. And I think that's that's what really what we we strive for in ourselves. Charlie Brown sort of lives in the space lives in the space between starting something and succeeding at it. And if he succeeded at the thing, it wouldn't be Charlie Brown anymore. And it's not that actually we doubt. Like, I, th- I think at, he, at some point he kicks the football. And at some mm-hmm. point he manages to approach the little redhead girl. I think he does all of those things. But that's not what this story is about. It's not that kind of story. The story is about the space between starting the thing and succeeding at the thing. And it's also, I think, important that he takes responsibility for the things that he has responsibility for and he does those things even though he's not succeeding at everything he's putting his mind to like actually in this christmas special where he's talking to lucy and she's just like hey we need we have a christmas play and we have everything we need but we don't have a director somehow they have a christmas play but they don't have a director and she says you're gonna be our director and he's he doesn't even say okay he just shows up and starts doing it he has a paper he starts telling them how he's gonna direct the play (laughs) Um, there's not even a question of whether or not he's going to accept the responsibility. It's just, oh, there is a vacancy. Charlie Brown will fill the vacancy, even though the vacancy is director and there's no conversation about what his qualifications would Mm. be. And even though when Lucy is like, we're going to have a director, it's going to be Charlie Brown. I forget which character it is. who's like, oh no, we're doomed. But like, everybody still accepts it (laughs) when he shows up. Yeah, we all... We all take it for granted that as much as we hate Charlie Brown, he's he's still the director. Right. Yeah. I had something on that note um, of what you were saying about this being kind of the nature of the strip. This is a, a, a fan letter written to Charles Schultz. This is from uh, Schultz's 1963 documentary. And Schultz is reading the letter out loud. This is what it says. Uh, Dear Mr. Schultz, over the years you have been pretty darn mean to my buddy Charlie Brown and I have always forgiven you. But now I am on the verge of becoming anti-peanuts. If you don't let Charlie Brown have a baseball card of Joe Schlobotnik, I will join the monastery and never purchase another another peanut strip as long as I live. And this is his response to his secretary. 
Uh, you better tell him to make reservations at the monastery. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yes, failure, I think, is one of the big themes um, yeah. of Charlie Brown. But another one which uh, you, you mentioned which you mentioned to me before we started recording, recording is Charlie Brown's depression mm-hmm. and, and that he's so uh, open about the fact that he's depressed. And I think that is also something that was unique to the comic strip world. Um, we didn't have someone who's just simply vulnerable. And there's a lot of comic strips where Charlie Brown, it makes you want to cry more than laugh, uh, whether it's the little redhead girl or losing the baseball team game and everyone giving up on him. And he's just banging his head up, up against a tree saying, I can't stand it. And, mm-hmm. and that's it. Right. Like that's the punchline. And I think that, yeah, that's he was able to infuse the frustration and sadness of life into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the two big themes that I think characterize the Peanuts, Peanuts comic strip is first, first is failure. And the, and the second one is happiness. Schultz talks a lot about happiness. What is happiness? And the interesting thing about how he defines happiness is that he always defines happiness very modestly. He always defines it in, in very little moments. Well, it's also concrete. Right. It's very concrete. Um, yeah, it's not some, some big visionary thing because, you know, um, depression is kind of an ongoing thing it's it's a it's a big monster and there's just and the and the cure to that is just being thankful for little things and and so he wrote this book um happiness is a warm puppy which was in 1963 it was the top selling nonfiction book in the u.s and it was just a list of things that made you happy he would write things like happiness is jumping on a pile of leaves hiccups after they've gone away happiness is a nightlight Uh, being able to reach the doorknob, walking in the grass in your bare feet. These are things that were written from the perspective of being a kid. This is things that he remembered growing up. And I just also wanted to read a couple things. This is after this was published. This was uh, a couple of happiness uh, lines written from kids who wrote into Charles Schultz with some illustrations. Uh, They would write things like, happiness is clean teeth. Happiness is a bunch of olives. Uh, happiness is dressing sloppy when you want to. <laughs> One of them wrote, and I can't tell, uh, I'm listening to a recording, I couldn't tell whether this was a boy or a girl who wrote this, but he said, uh, I think it's having all girls in my family and no boys except daddy. <laughs> happiness is being a man. When you don't get any fillings at the dentist. <laughs> a, little, a little sister that doesn't cry at night. Uh, eating a 500-pound marshmallow. And uh, this last one that was written in, happiness is a warm summer's day, the feeling of smooth silk, the smell of an ocean surf, feeling that mommy and daddy really love you. And this one did not have any illustrations in it because it was written in Braille. Hmm. No. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Would you say that happiness is running after a garbage truck that's playing for Elise? (laughs) I would say that's happiness to me, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. What's happiness to you? Happiness is a peppermint mocha. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. So now we're dad uh, uh, geeking out about how much we love Charlie Brown. (laughs) Uh, Let's geek out a little bit more about this this show, Charlie Brown Christmas. This, uh, well, first of all, I just want to mention this uh, show... 
was expected to be a failure <laughs> um, when it was it, there were a lot of weird things about it that the television network and even the creators of the show felt really uncomfortable about. Um, first is that Charles Schultz insisted that Linus deliver the Christmas message of the angel delivering the Annunciation to the shepherds. Um, they were very concerned about relig re mixing religion with entertainment. Also using actual child voice actors. That was very unusual at the time. Um, some of them were about ages 6 to 10. And if you go back and rewatch the show, you'll notice that the lines are a little bit choppy. Um, and that's because many of the voice actors still couldn't read and they were having the lines fed to them. Uh, especially Lucy, who has a bunch of really, bunch of really big words and lines like, come on, Charlie Brown, we all know Christmas is a big commercial racket. It's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know? So, um, a couple other things that were strange about this jazz music that didn't really, uh, the network thought that didn't really fit in with everything. Um, so that felt like kind of out of place. And it was too slow paced, and the animation was really simple, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, it also, if you go back, you can actually tell the animation is really sloppy. Like uh, it, it was obvious that they did this on a on a, a beer budget and and really fast. Yeah. Um, like if you go, if you look at the close up shots, like it does a close up shot and then it does a wide shot. And they're, like, not even standing in the same place. <laughs> um, it's like, super inconsistent. Yeah. But anyway, okay, so let's jump into the, the summary of this. So beginning of the special, Charlie Brown immediately says, first scene, something is wrong with him. Uh, he likes Christmas in the sense that he likes getting gifts, but he's still not happy somehow. So we have these first two lines. The first lines in the special are Charlie Brown says to Linus, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. And Linus replies, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know that who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. So we immediately have this problem, which is not understanding Christmas. He goes around to his friends, and especially at first, it seems like his friends aren't having the same problem that he is necessarily. Um, they all seem pretty happy. He's kind of walking around seeing their antics. Uh, nobody is sending him Christmas cards. <laughs> he says something like, thanks for your Christmas card to one of his friends. And his friend says, I didn't send you a Christmas card. And he says, don't you know sarcasm when you hear it? He oh, and also his, his his own dog has gone commercial. Yes. Too. Yes. Uh, Which is a recurring he, he theme. Sees, yes. Every Everyone's gone commercial. His yeah. sister Sally's gone commercial. She's asking him to dictate a really greedy letter to Santa Claus. Um, and then his, his Snoopy is is decorating his house. And Charlie Brown sees that he's entering into a contest. Um and the contest advertisement says, find the true meaning of Christmas, which is money, money, money. Yep. Um, well, that... And he goes, oh, no, even my own dog has gone commercial. Well, and when <laughs> Sally, you mentioned Sally writing the letter or him or her dictating the letter to Charlie Brown. And she at the end starts asking for money. And she says, you can send money, preferably in 10s and 20s. And he says, oh, brother, <laughs> yeah. even my own baby sister. And she says, 
all I want is what I've got coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe plays in a little bit into this theme of what is Christmas? What do you deserve at Christmas? All that. So yeah. there's also this really, I think, important scene pretty early on where Charlie Brown goes to get psychiatric help <laughs> from, <laughs> from Lucy, who's also, yeah. you know, just a kid. And she's just written, like, psych- psychiatric help on a cardboard box, and that's, like, her stand. And she's, but she's very confident, apparently, about helping him. But she, yeah. she rips him off. Because he, he shows up, he gives her some money, and she talks about how sweet the sound of the, the nickel jangling in the cup is. Yeah, and, it's always a ripoff going to Lucy. And oh. he he's so open about the fact that he's depressed. He says, I'm really depressed, it's Christmas, I'm always depressed around Christmas, help me. And she says, okay, well, we need to figure out what you're afraid of. And she asks him, are you afraid of responsibility? Are you afraid of cats? Are you afraid of staircases? And each time she tells him what the phobia name is for the thing. And he always says, well, I don't think that's exactly it. And then finally she asks him if he has pantophobia. And he says, what's that? And she says, the fear of everything. And he yells in her face, that's it! (laughs) And she goes blowing back. But that's the point at which she floats the idea that he should direct their Christmas pageant. Or their Christmas play. And he says, well, what is it? And she says, we've got a shepherd, musicians, animals, everyone you need. We've even got a Christmas queen. Which (laughs) I think the obvious irony there is it's a Christmas play, but there's no mention of a baby Jesus or Christ at all. It's just you've got a shepherd, (laughs) one shepherd, (laughs) you've got musicians, (laughs) you've got animals, and you have a Christmas queen. So it's like they, they have a sense maybe of what the Christmas story is kind of. But not really. They know some of the characters, but it seems like maybe no one actually has a great grasp at this point of the plot of the Christmas story. Lucy, though, after they have this exchange at the the psychiatric help station, she admits that she also always gets depressed at Christmas and never gets what she really wants. And the punchline is obviously that what she really wants is real estate, which is you know, it's something. But she also, maybe there's something missing. She wants to figure out what's going on with Christmas. So Car- Charlie Brown goes to direct the play, like we talked about earlier. They hear that he's going to direct the play. They go, oh no, we're doomed. And he shows up. He tells them how he's going to direct. And they're all dancing to this song, which is the famous da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, the Linus and Lucy theme, which is interesting to me because it's not Christmas music at all. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Brown definitely seems dissatisfied with that. So they give out all these parts. They have the the innkeeper, the innkeeper's wife, um, the animals who are going to be played by Snoopy, Linus, who's going to be the shepherd. Again, nobody's really telling the story. They're just kind of trying to hand out parts. And so Lucy, after she says that Christmas is just a big commercial racket, she decides that what they really need is a Christmas tree, but not just any Christmas tree. They need, like, this big pink aluminum Christmas tree, so a fake tree. And Mm. she sends Charlie Brown out to go and get a Christmas tree, which is theoretically the missing piece to their play. He goes out to get the Christmas tree. Uh, While he's out there finding a tree, we have this little scene that I also think is important. I wouldn't mention it except that I think that it, it matters in terms of the theme. Where Schroeder, who's the, the character who always plays the piano, he's sitting there. And it's the famous, there's always scenes like this where Lucy is sitting there kind of leaning on the piano, talking to him while he's playing. He starts playing Fur Elise. And she goes, is that 
that, that's Christmas music? And he's like, yeah, it's Beethoven Christmas music. But she doesn't really seem convinced. And then he moves on to playing a jazz number that Snoopy's dancing to. And then she asks him to play Jingle Bells. And he starts playing the melody for Jingle Bells. And she says, no, no, no. I mean, you know, Jingle Bells, like something. I forget. She's snow on the ground or something like that. And then he. Uh, ho, ho, ho. Yes. Or something. <laughs> and he keeps playing. And she keeps saying, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. And so there's confusion over what the right music is to play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, jingle Bells is uh, ho, 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 sleigh bells and presents to pretty girls. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She maybe wants a present. <laughs> maybe is yeah. what she's going to get there. Um, right. So Charlie Brown comes back with the one tree he's found, which is the only real tree in this lot of big, fake, brightly colored trees that are like aluminum. And it's this tiny little shrub that's got maybe three branches on it. Really, really tiny. And he takes it because it's a real tree. He brings it back and they all berate him. And one of them says, can't you tell the difference between a good tree and a poor tree? So not a good tree and a bad tree, but a good tree and a poor tree, which I think is interesting given the commercialism theme. And it's also not a difference between a real tree and a fake tree, which apparently is not something that they're concerned about. Right. Right. There's nothing to do with money that's going on here. So Charlie Brown has a little outburst and he says his famous line, which is, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And instantly Linus replies, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And he goes onto the stage and there's a spotlight that goes on him. And he recites the Christmas story, the one from Luke. And it's the the shepherd passage. And he leaves the stage and he very calmly goes over to Charlie Brown. And he says, so that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown takes the tree and with a smile on his face, he walks out and he stands in the field. And he's in the snow. There are stars kind of twinkling above him. He hears the echo of Linus telling the Christmas story. And he says he's not going to let commercialism ruin his Christmas. He looks over at Snoopy's doghouse. He sees an ornament. He takes the ornament and says, maybe this tree just needs whatever it needs. You know, a little bit of care. He puts the ornament on the tree. It droops. (laughs) He goes, I've killed it. Everything I touched gets ruined. And he leaves. And all his friends come. They see the tree kind of drooping down. And Linus takes his blanket that he always carries around, wraps it around the base of the tree, and it's able to stand up again. And the rest of them look at it and they go, oh, maybe it is a nice tree. And they take all the stuff from Snoopy's doghouse that's all decorated for the contest. And they put all the ornaments onto this tree. So now it's this really beautiful little tree. Somehow the physics don't really work. (laughs) It has a lot more branches now, but that's fine. And they start humming Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is the sound that Charlie Brown hears. And he comes back and he sees that they've fix the tree and they all say Merry Christmas and they all together sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is the first time we hear a Christmas hymn or really a Christmas song besides Jingle Bells in the whole special. And then we zoom out and the credits roll. Yeah. So, um, uh, one of the things that was really interesting that you, you, that I would, you know, I was picking up as you were going through this summary is that a lot of the dispute between what Christmas is really about has to do with music. Mm-hmm. Right away, when he goes to direct the pageant, they're all dancing to the Linus and Lucy theme. So obviously mm-hmm. not Christmas music. And Charlie Brown pretty quickly wants to shut that down. He doesn't like that. He, when he starts, when he tells Schroeder that they're going to start practicing, he says, okay, play the music. 
and he starts playing the Linus and Lucy theme again. He says, no, 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 cut the music. So he knows that that's wrong. He knows that the music is somehow incorrect for the pageant, but he doesn't have an explanation or a way to describe why he's dissatisfied with the music. I think something similar is going on in the scene with Schroeder and Lucy where she keeps telling him to change, or she she's questioning whether or not Fur Elise is Christmas music, but doesn't really mm-hmm. have an argument when Schroeder tells her that it's Beethoven Christmas music. And mm-hmm. then when she asks for Jingle Bells, she keeps telling him that what he's playing is not Jingle Bells. She wants something that is more Christmassy. She keeps telling him Christmas terms like ho, 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 and, you know, pre- presents for pretty girls and things that are related mm-hmm. to Christmas. But he is playing the song she asked for. So clearly she's thinking of something else that she wants him to be playing or something mm-hmm. else she wants to happen, something more Christmassy to make this... Because she also says she's depressed around Christmas, right? So clearly Lucy also mm-hmm. feels that something is missing, but she also doesn't know how to express it. Uh, I, I also think there's actually a little bit, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of irony in this, in this, uh, uh, in this special that Charles Schultz was probably aware of, um, because Peanuts itself, even at this point in 1963, was a huge commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the reason why, like, Linus and Lucy is even in there at all is because that's part of the Peanuts branding. Right. You know, um, and it's a recognizable song. And they're and dancing. Part of the, right. And part of the reason why Schroeder just shoehorns uh, Beethoven in there and calls it Beethoven Christmas music is because that's Schroeder's thing, right? And every single character has their own kind of like signature character trait. And so you got to put that in there because that's his brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the disjointedness of all of these songs altogether are part of because of the, 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 the Peanuts brand has to be remain consistent. Um, and I think that that might be a little bit have to do with what Lucy was uh, alluding to when he's when she said that Christmas is run by a big Eastern syndicate. Mm. Um, that's deliberately vague. Uh, it's it's not really clear what it is. There were a lot of people at that time who were concerned about corporations sort of taking over our humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the punchline is just a child saying the word syndicate, which is sort of tickles your funny bone. Yeah. Um, but also that's how. Comics were published through syndicates, so it could be that Schultz was trying to be very, like, uh, slyly alluding to his own syndicate. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, This is kind of on a bigger level, maybe, than the music situation, but I think that the music um, that's not quite Christmas music and that no one quite recognizes what's wrong with it, but maybe still are recognizing that something needs to be different, that there's something missing in the music is also something we see played out in the fact that no one seems to quite understand what the Christmas story is. So going back to the first time that Lucy is introducing the pageant to Charlie Brown, when she says, you're going to direct our Christmas play. When she says, we've got a shepherd, musicians, animals, everyone you need. We've even got a Christmas queen. What's so interesting about that to me is that it's on the right track. It's got some of the right characters, like the shepherd and the animals, But we've got musicians are thrown in there. We don't mention Christ. We don't mention Mary. We don't mention Joseph. We don't mention any wise men. And there's a Christmas queen thrown in, which is a little bit reminiscent to me of the way that very small children see 
the story surrounding something that they don't quite understand yet. They're still kind of wrapping their heads around. Like, if you've ever heard a very small child describe a Bible story or some very famous story, they'll throw in random stuff (laughs) that's not actually in the story, or they'll get little pieces wrong because they're still kind of figuring out what the story even is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we see when they go and they pass out the scripts too, where they keep, they assign everyone a part and they say, you're going to be the innkeeper's wife. You're going to be the innkeeper. Um, you're going to be all the animals. And then they go tell Linus he's going to be the shepherd, just one shepherd. And then they say, okay, Sally's going to be your wife, but the the Bible story doesn't mention any shepherd's wives. So they're throwing in extra <laughs> characters too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then but they never read any scripts. They there's no story that it seems like they're performing. They're just kind of getting ready to act something out, but there's no indication that any of them actually know what the story is. Right. And you know, Charles Schultz is a very astute cultural critic and you can definitely see a little bit of his satire going coming through here. I mean, he was really c- capturing kind of a cultural moment at his time. Um uh, you know, and which is, I guess, it, it's it's still still true today, um, although it's you know obviously not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, this it's it's interesting that the 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 story arc is not we've never heard of the Christmas pageant before and then we discover it. Right. It's like it's there. It's staring them right in their face. And they're just kind of going through. We just It's just kind of like this hodgepodge of imagery that's just kind of floats in front of our periphery and, you know, we, you know floats across us. And we just kind of are, it's just part of the, the things that you do, mm-hmm. right? That's um, sort of the thing that Charlie Brown is going through is like, okay, here are the things you do at Christmas. You give presents, you, you, you make decorations, you do all these things. So... Everyone is just kind of like, well, these are the things you do at this time of year. And, and, and having a pageant is one of the things that you do. Um, the Christmas Queen, I don't think that this really exists, right? I don't think there's such a thing as a Christmas Queen. I think Schultz made this up. But also, um, I think what he's riffing on here is basically like a prom queen. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, going back to kind of the the sort of cultural... Uh, the zeitgeist of the 60s is, you know, like going to prom and having a jazz dance and everything like that. Um, And so I think what Lucy has in mind here is a prom queen Mm -hmm. and then she just switched it up and called it a Christmas queen. And this goes back again to um, the thing of where you just sort of rebrand something to make it appropriate to the season. Right. and this, again, is part of Schultz's sort of cultural critique, right, of, you know, you take prom queen and then you rebrand it as Christmas queen. You take Beethoven and then you rebrand it as Beethoven Christmas music. Right. And he's even doing this to some extent with the Great Pumpkin, with Linus and the Great Pumpkin. Mm-hmm. Right. You take Santa Claus and you make Santa Claus for Halloween. Yep. He's he's very clever. Yes. He is much more clever than he lets on. So, yeah. I also think, I mean, it's very clear that Lucy, Lucy is the Christmas queen. <laughs> Even yeah, though he is, yeah. she doesn't, she doesn't say that at first. The way she says, we've even got a Christmas queen makes it very clear that she at least thinks that she's going to be the Christmas queen. And when they hand out the scripts, mm-hmm. it's unclear how the Christmas queen is even supposed to play into 
the story. Like, what is a Christmas queen? What does she do? So she's maybe <laughs> making it up. But it's very much, there's a mixture of, there's part of the real story, and then there's some mythology that they're kind of throwing in. And they're almost making up the mythology. So, yeah, yeah. very clear that they, they kind of have a grasp on what the story is, but they kind of don't. Another question that I have yeah. that I thought maybe we could talk about is, why Linus? Why is Linus sort of the the sage, the hero of this story? Because some things that I noticed about Linus that I think are interesting are the few little scenes where we see him, he has his blanket. There's a scene where they kind of criticize him for carrying his blanket around. And he doesn't seem too concerned about that. I think Lucy asked, what are you going to do with your blanket when you get older, when you grow up? And he says, well, maybe I'll make it into a sports coat. So he's not concerned. He's not going to lose his blanket. He just is coming up with some other way that he can use his blanket. And then the other scene where we see him is where he's told he's going to be the shepherd and he looks at the lines and he goes, oh no, this is too many to memorize. And then, of course, there's the first scene where he, Charlie Brown says his problem, which is that he's depressed at Christmas. And Linus kind of dismisses him. Is kind of like, you're the only person who could have a problem at Christmas and you're the Charlie Browniest person in the world and all that. And those are pretty much the scenes that we see him before he suddenly steps out of the woodwork and says... I know, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And what I think is so striking about that is everyone's kind of been dancing around this story and nobody knows what the real meaning of Christmas is. Nobody seems to know what the story is. And then suddenly among them, secretly, there has been one who knew it the whole time. (laughs) Who had the story memorized. Also, I think it's interesting that Linus says he's concerned about memorizing all his lines and then he has the whole Luke passage memorized somehow. So there's something very mysterious about Linus that he's been hiding this knowledge that he has, this secret knowledge until this moment. And I wonder why that happens. Well, Linus is a very interesting character um, uh, because... You notice every single character in the Peanuts comic strip, they they usually have some unrequited crush on someone, um, or they have some sort of, no matter how confident they are, um, there's some thorn in their flesh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. There's something that bugs them a little bit. You know, like Lucy, for all her confidence, can never get Schroeder's attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, And same thing with like Sally and Peppermint Patty and... And all of these characters, and even Snoopy, uh, is always losing to the Red Baron in his imagination. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Linus, although he's carrying around the security blanket all the time, he's actually the most self-assured character in the series. Mm-hmm. He's the one who really knows who he is. As long as he has his security blanket, he is not anxious about anything. He's unconcerned. He's unconcerned. And Linus is also the most Christian person. In the comic strip, hmm. whenever so Schultz had sort of a tenuous relationship with Christianity, um, he always had a, like a respect for it, and he always brought it into the comic strip. I wouldn't say he was like a super serious Christian, but it was it was part of his his life. And whenever he wanted to talk about religion, he would always use Linus hmm. to talk about it. So Linus knows the Apostle Paul extremely well. Hmm. Anytime scripture passage is put, quoted in the Peanuts comic strip, it is always Linus who does it. So I think that Schultz just saw Linus as kind of just like a mouthpiece for talking about his religious convictions. 
and I think it's an, he's an interesting character to choose uh, because he's so childlike. And I think that's part of why Schultz wanted to use him as the character to talk about religion. Um, because he is he kind of embodies that sort of wise fool that we talked about, uh, that the wise fool uh, type who someone who appears sort of simple minded, but really has this wisdom beyond their years. Yeah. And also has that sort of childlike faith, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you were mentioning uh, that it's weird that he doesn't uh, share this right away, that he kind of puts Charlie Brown, Brown down at the beginning. Um, I have sort of a technical answer to this that isn't really interesting. And part of the reason why this is, is because most of these TV shows, when you build a comic strip, right, they're you're, they're usually not like complete stories, right? They're like little strips, right? So, so there wasn't actually a Charlie Brown Christmas story. Um, none of these, uh, none of these comic strips, like Lucy, the episode with Charlie Brown and Lucy at the psychiatric booth, did not happen in the context of a Christmas special, right? Or happen during Christmas time. So if you want to make a coherent story, you just take all of these incoherent strips together and just kind of patch them together, mm-hmm. which is what they did. And that's just a line. I don't actually, I don't think Linus even says that line in the original comic strip. I think it's Lucy or someone else. But again, it's like, it's a famous line. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. Mm-hmm. So part of this could be just sloppy writing. Like, they're just patching lines together, and that's just something that they wanted to have in there at that moment. But, you know, Linus, all these characters, they're not always totally consistent, you know. Um, So Linus is always usually Charlie Brown's best friend, but sometimes he does join in with the mob and mock Charlie Brown along with everyone else. Um, Everyone has... uh, Moments where they're uh, kind of kind to Charlie Brown and moments where they're 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 sort of sour and they they use him as a spiritual scratching post. Mm -hmm. And that's Charlie Brown's own words there. So, yeah, I also wonder. So this is kind of be answering my own question, but it's really intriguing to me that when Charlie Charlie Brown's first lines are not asking a question, it's just a complaint. And the complaint is, he says, there must be something wrong with me. I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I don't understand Christmas. I always end up feeling depressed. So he makes this complaint, but he doesn't ask any questions. And Linus's response is not to answer any questions because Charlie Brown doesn't ask any questions. He just says, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem, which might be true. That's not necessarily an undeserved rebuke from Linus. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm kind of struck by the fact that Linus responds instantly when Charlie Brown asks a question, which is, can't anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And instantly Linus says, well, I can. Like, if you had asked earlier, I I would have told you. Mm. Um, Yeah. Which I think either maybe shows that Linus is there's something intelligent there that he didn't mm-hmm. he didn't answer until Charlie Brown was ready for it. 
and he maybe yeah, wasn't yeah. ready for it until the moment where he brought the tree back and he was ridiculed for the tree and he was in such desperate straits right. that he was willing to cry out for help. Whereas, and, and to cry out to his friends, to people who might be able to help him versus Lucy, who's playing a psychiatrist who's not actually going to be able to help him at all, right? Or Linus is just a kid who didn't didn't think to answer the question until Charlie Brown really asked the question. He goes, oh, well, of course I could tell you that. Why didn't you ask earlier? And it's like, well, maybe he kind of did. Yeah, so even though the kids, they sort of talk like adults, so to speak, at a lot of, a lot of instances, there is something about them that is still nonetheless very childlike about them. They are very authentically children in the sense that, you know, they are inconsistent. And, you know, sometimes they actually know the answer the whole time, but they just, you know, and kids are often like that. They, they know a lot more than you, than you expect of them. And sometimes they really surprise you. And, um, another interesting thing about Linus staring that when he delivers this address of the Annunciation to the angels, he, at the moment when it says, when he says, the angel says, fear not, Linus drops his blanket. Oh, um, I did not notice that. Which, yeah, it's a very deliberate gesture right there. Um, but that's the only time that Linus feels unafraid. The fear not so, also is a yeah. really interesting contrast to the fact that Lucy tells Charlie Brown he needs to figure out what he's afraid of and presents all of the different phobias that he might have and then says, do you have pantophobia? Like, that's the fear of everything. And he says, yes, that's it, right? So early on we have this idea that the problem with Charlie Brown is that he's afraid of everything. And then part of the passage that Linus recites is that the angels say, fear not. So this really is kind of an antidote to Charlie Brown's specific problem, which is somehow related to fear. So it is interesting that, like, even though the 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 story is seems like inconsistent, incoherent, and sort of slapdash, it actually does hang together in a weird way. Which is, I think, what makes it work. I think that's what makes it popular. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what makes it makes it work. So yeah, a little bit more background on this. So this, I mean. Yeah, this when this thing aired, uh, it, it was a huge hit. Like literally forty, it took up forty five percent of the viewing audience when it aired. So half of America, oh my god, was watching this, and it's still, it's still a popular to this day. And it is so interesting that such a popular and enduring classic would be so just like simple and thrown together and have all it thrown together and have all these errors in it. And I think that the style, the sort of dinginess of the show itself really actually accentuates the message even more because the message, I mean, we, the, the, the phrase, a Charlie Brown tree is kind of become common parlance. Now, you know what that mm-hmm. means? You know, it's just a dingy tree and a poor tree a poor tree and the show itself is kind of a charlie brown sort of tree Mm -hmm. so it's very appropriate and why is that tree valuable what is it that charlie brown sees in this tree and and i think that's an interesting question to look into is that you know what makes a story valuable when we look because us you know uh, you and me as like artists we and storytellers we spend a lot of time analyzing style you know 
And, you know, we've done a lot of coaching, too, on, like, what makes a good story. You know, we talk about change. Like, change is really important to story. And Peanuts doesn't really follow that rule because none of the characters ever change. Mm-hmm. They're just doing the same thing over again, right? And, you know, there needs to be coherency. You know, the plot needs to hang together. You know, it doesn't really have a lot of plot. It's just kind of one thing after another. And then stylistically, you know, there are all of these kind of, like, tiny little errors in, in the drawings and stuff. So if you're just looking at this from a purely artistic point of view, you know, this this is, in fact, a failure. Mm-hmm. And yet it was, it's, it's a huge success. It works. And it works. So why does it work? And, you know, why does this, why does this tiny little dingy Charlie Brown tree have, have value? Yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought this up because I really wanted to talk about the tree. I have a theory about the tree... But I will start by just close reading what happens with the tree. So, Charlie Brown is told, right, go get a pink aluminum Christmas tree. We need a big fancy tree. That's the thing that's missing, right? So I think it's really key that they know that something's missing from the pageant, from their play. They go, I guess it must be a Christmas tree. Which, again, seems like a very normal, authentic small children thing to think like you're putting together a pageant you're like man something's missing I can't figure out what it is well Christmas has trees I guess so we need a Christmas tree and so they send Charlie Brown to get it and he goes and there are all these big flashy trees and he picks the only real tree which also happens to be this very small very humble little tree and he picks a real tree that also presumably is the least expensive thing in the lot, right? Because all these trees are big and shiny and made of aluminum, so they're going to be, you know, more money than this tiny little shrub that's just nothing. And he brings it back and they call it a poor tree, right? Don't you don't you know the difference between a good tree and a poor tree? And they all are upset at him. And then once he hears the Christmas story, which is the first time that the name of Christ is mentioned, he leaves. He doesn't even say anything, but he takes the tree with him. The tree is what somehow is associated with what he learns from this story and he goes and he puts the ornament on it and then he's upset and all his friends come and they see now some value in the tree as well they say okay well i guess he got a nice tree after they put all the ornaments from snoopy's house so they take everything from the house that was decorated for the contest and they kind of give it to this tree they decorate the tree with all this stuff that was for the purpose of this contest that said that Christmas was all about money and they use it instead to beautify this little tree. And once the tree is made beautiful, then they start singing the Christmas hymn, which is the first real Christmas music that we hear besides the little jingle bells. Here's my theory. My theory is that the tree is Christ. And here is why. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. Because they say, when they say, here's the play, there's no mention of Christ. When they hand out all the roles, there's no Christ child. Christ is completely missing from the pageant. They say something's missing. They say it must be a Christmas tree. They send Charlie Brown and he's drawn to this little tree that is lowly, right? Humble, like a little baby in a manger versus all of these other flashy trees. And he, something in him is like, this is the right one. This is the Christmas tree because it's little, because it's lowly, because it's unassuming. And when he brings it back, they all kind of want to reject it. And it's in response to everyone rejecting it that he kind of cries out in frustration that he doesn't know what Christmas is. If this tree doesn't represent Christmas, then what does? Yeah. And then Linus yeah. tells the story and he says that they're they're announcing the birth of Christ the Lord. And then he's confident in the tree. 
He's no longer concerned about the fact that everyone's going to ridicule the tree. He takes the tree with him. He says, I know now this is what Christmas is all about, which is, I think, the representation of Christ. And then the other point that I want to make about that is they take all the stuff that's meant for the bad goal of commercialism and, and the contest and they give the tree gifts. They, they're like the magi, right? They give all these gifts and ornaments to the tree and that makes the tree beautiful. And they're able to see that the tree is beautiful because they have given it their worship. <laughs> worship might be too strong a word, but they have done something for it. They've done something in service to the tree. And then they're able to see the beauty of it. And they're able to see that this is what they needed. And I think that when they all sing around the tree, that's their pageant, right? They don't actually go back and perform the play. They don't actually act out the story. All that they need is the tree there as they sing which is what the angels are heralding. That's my theory. <laughs> the tree is Christ. No, I think you're absolutely right there. And the the actual story of, like, you know, the tradition of where Christmas trees come from, I, I don't even, like, know exactly, you know, where it comes from, you know, somewhere in the, the origins of the European, original European holiday, Um you know, and it's it's often been pointed out that these things are not the the Christmas traditional winter solstice Christmas tradition with the Christmas tree and all of that are you know are uh, pagan rituals that are we're now blending with you know the story of Christ, um, which I think at least as far insofar as this podcast is concerned is a moot point, mm-hmm. right. Um, doesn't matter. Um, that's kind of what the point is of, of, of uh, what Christ's gift to the world was. And yeah, if the, if that is a problem, then we need to stop making this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like okay, we take this symbol, and it's like this is this is the unknown God, right? And this is what you worship, and when you worship unknowingly, you know, we will now tell you the meaning of this, and. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I've heard the criticisms, you know, and, you know, it was comedy. I commonly heard the criticisms of like songs like, oh, Christmas tree is like, oh, yeah, you're worshiping the tree. And like, you know, I get that. Like, you know, you don't want to be worshiping the Christmas tree. But um, but what that symbolizes, I think that there is something really, really valuable that and um, I think you see it there. And the interesting thing also about the about the humility, you know, of the Christmas tree, of of the Christ child, of this being the thing of true value, of the thing that you worship, is that it does have a bit of an emphasis on ugliness, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the aluminum trees are more beautiful, um, but somehow they're, they're hollow. At one point, Linus actually knocks his knuckles on it, and you can hear it mm-hmm. being, like, the, the, the echo in it. And... You know, if you look at like, like, you know, when I, I here in here in Taipei, I can walk around and I see these gorgeous temples everywhere, Buddhist and Taoist Dao, temples. And this art is just, you know, splendid. It's it's um really impressive for, you know, most of human history. Right. This the it was pretty much taken for granted that, you know, temples should be constructed. They should be expensive. They should be beautiful. They should be fancy. Um, and of course, that's also true of Christianity, too. And I'm, I don't have anything against, you know, beautiful architecture or anything. And 
traditional cathedrals, but I think that there's an interesting emphasis and point being made here between the the gods of this world, which are uh, really elaborate and beautiful, somehow all become worthless in the face of one real thing, right? Mm -hmm. And... And this is why I was talking about the difference is not between what they said, a, a good tree and a, and a poor tree, right? That was the whole binary that they were operating in, you know, something that was expensive versus something that was inexpensive. But that was not the plane that Charlie Brown was thinking on. Charlie Brown was thinking fake versus real. And that's what made the tree valuable. It's like, it, it, it's not because it's uh, as beautiful as these other trees. It is beautiful because it's real and none of these other trees are. Mm. It's a little bit like, have you seen Indiana Jones, The Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the first one, Wait. right? No, it's the one where they yes. they try to find the grail. Oh, yeah, it's the, I think it's a search for the Holy Grail. Yeah, okay, I forget what the title <laughs> is. So it's whatever Just the one is where they're now. trying to find the Holy Grail. Yeah. There's the knight. The last crusade. Last crusade. There's the knight yeah. that's guarding all of the the different cups, and then Indiana Jones shows up, and there's also like the bad guys that show up, and there's the really famous scene where they have to pick, and he picks the most beautiful cup, and he drinks from it, and he, you know, screams and fall, turns into dust. Whatever happens to him, he he dies. And the knight just very calmly says, he chose poorly. And then Indiana Jones gets to go next and he chooses the the littlest, the the humblest, simplest, most unassuming cup. And he chooses correctly. That's the, the right one. I think there's something similar going on here where it's the the unassuming, it's the simple thing, the real thing that is the true thing. Right. And also... I want to go back to the beautiful cathedrals, mm -hmm. right? Because I was making a comparison between, like, you know, all these elaborate cathedrals and, like, you know, something simple, you know, is and the, the, the aluminum trees versus the one real tree. Um, again, I'm not saying this to criticize beautiful cathedrals at all. But this is why there's a difference between these two mindsets because this is the, all the gang. They take all the ornaments off of Snoopy's doghouse and they put it on the real tree. Mm -hmm. So you take the humble tree and you beautify that mm -hmm. and you make that beautiful and you make that elaborate. So it's different. It's a different kind of beautiful. You know, you're investing the decorations in something different than what you were before because you were building it on a foundation that's that's real. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a different mindset. You have a root. Um, and so beautifying things, even commercializing things, you know, proclaiming these things to the world, it's now it's still being conducted, right? But now it's done with a different mindset. Mm -hmm. I you also know. think it's really interesting that what the tree needs is the care and love of many people not just one person because charlie brown takes the one ornament and puts it on and he thinks he's killed the tree because it droops over and that's when he runs away but it takes linus coming up and saying no no, no it's okay and he take he takes his blanket which is the most precious thing he has and he lets go of the blanket to use it to hold up the tree 
And then everyone follows suit and they all take all the ornaments and they put it on the tree. So it takes not just one person taking one ornament and putting it on the tree. It takes lots of people offering what they have. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's what's, it's valuable, especially it's what's valuable to you that you put underneath the tree. Um, yeah. And so that's what Christmas is all about, Sophia. Using my real name made that somehow so much so much more impactful. I felt something. I'm ready for Christmas yeah. now. Yeah, well, Merry Christmas, Sophie. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Raymond. Well, yeah. let's do this again sometime. Right, right. Well, I'll, I'll see you next time. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Raymond Dokapil and Sophie Belonkel. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us, review us, and write to us at unreliablepodcasters at gmail.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash unreliablenarratorspodcast. Shout out to our Paradiso-level patron, Amy Klomperens. Our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, unlike we promised in this episode, we really will be discussing the 1903 short story The Magic Shop by science fiction author H.G. Wells. Until then, when you're making a Christmas episode for your podcast, upload your recordings right away. Why? Um, no reason. I know you can see something inside The one part of me that I cannot hide For all